It's good to be in God's house this morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. I'll be preaching this morning on the Messiah in the Old Testament. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you tell us in your word to make our ears attentive to wisdom and to incline our hearts to understanding. You tell us, Lord, that if we cry out for discernment and lift our voice for understanding, that if we seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then we will discern the fear of the Lord and we will discover the knowledge of God. Oh, Father, this is our need and this is our desire this morning. Would you help us? Would you help me as I unfold this scripture? Help me to be clear and to be accurate. And Father, help your people to be careful how they listen. Lord, that they might be blessed doers of your word to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So like I said, I'm going to be preaching on the Messiah in the Old Testament from Isaiah 9. Uh, And I just want to say up front that there are many places where the Messiah and the anticipation of the Messiah are clearly taught in the Old Testament scriptures. But it seems that one text in particular has become familiar to just about the whole world as an Old Testament text that embodies the Messianic hope. And this is the text that I've chosen to preach this morning, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Now, you're probably used to reading some of these verses on Christmas cards, to hearing them sung in Christmas concerts, Uh, but this morning I want you to consider this text more fully in its context, which will help you to see how significant this messianic prophecy was to its original audience, and thereby, hopefully, to comprehend more fully how much hope these words in Isaiah 9 about the Messiah should bring to you personally. Uh, Now, in terms of seeing these verses in their context, first it's helpful to see where they are in the Bible. If you look down at your Bible, you'll see that Isaiah is more than halfway through the Bible, uh, which speaks in part to the fact that uh, it comes in the later part of the Old Testament record. Uh, More than 3,000 years of world history had passed by the time of this prophecy, which left just a little over 700 years between this prophecy and the coming of the Messiah of whom it speaks. Now, as is true of uh, Old Testament prophets in general, Isaiah's message is largely a response to the ongoing rebellion of God's people against his rule and his reign over them. Therefore, most of Isaiah's first 35 chapters are spent describing the judgment that God has planned to bring against his people, which is a judgment, he says, largely by means of the military aggressions of other nations. Uh, and two nations in particular. First, Assyria, we see that in chapter 10, and later in in chapter 39, it'll be Babylon. Now, it's the role of Assyria in bringing God's judgment that is in view in our text this morning. By the time we come to this prophecy in chapter 9, the Assyrian Empire has regained a great deal of military strength following about a hundred-year decline There was a time with some less powerful kings in Assyria in which their conquests kind of came to a halt. But that is regaining, they're regaining their strength, and they're again advancing in their imperial quest throughout the region that includes Israel for sure, and to a lesser extent also Judah. 
Uh, in response to this, Isaiah presents two starkly different responses to these sort of complex geopolitical challenges that face the people. Isaiah's perspective first, which he commends in repeated contrast to the other, is that God's faithful should see Israel as one people, Israel and Judah as one, and should, as that one people, look to God for his faithful rule and reign and protection over them. In contrast with that faithful view, which is Isaiah's view, we see faithless kings, and we read about this throughout the accounts in First and Second Kings, faithless kings like Ahaz in Judah and Pekah in Israel at the time of this prophecy, and these kings are actually forming alliances with other pagan nations against each other. In fact, we find throughout this period of Israel's history that God's people, both Israel and Judah, are willing to look just about anywhere other than God for practical help and hope in the midst of their difficulty. Uh, in doing this, they form alliances with the likes of Damascus, Assyria, Egypt, and Babylon, in hopes that it'll provide them security against military threats, but those military threats end up coming from these very same nations, these very same powers. Now, it can be easy from our position, almost 3,000 years later, reading all about these things, to sit here and think, wow, it was kind of dumb that Israel and Judah trusted in all those other nations instead of in God, who had already shown his faithfulness and who had promised concerning the virgin-born child a sign that he would rescue them from all of their trouble. Now, before you jump to a judgment like that, perhaps you should consider that we tend to engage in a similar pattern of unfaithfulness. Here we are in our country in an election year, and on top of that, we're in the midst of a sort of a political firestorm over impeachment. And I know that many of us are tempted, as Israel and Judah were, to look to politics or to political alliances as the answer to what we perceive as threats from the world around us. And of course, it's not just politics that call out to us as our savior. At this time of year, we hear the clarion call of every kind of physical comfort imaginable to be given as gifts at Christmas and enjoyed at least for a time, even if that's like five minutes, into the new year. Well, now that Christmas has passed, and many of us are still trying to figure out how to deal with the massive piles of new material possessions for which there's no more room in our houses, and as we deal perhaps with the sense that the holidays might not have brought the payout that we had hoped, or that the political gains we thought were ours might be threatened by the maneuverings of an election year, let's take a look together at this text where we will see a reason from God to be encouraged in our hearts more than we could ever be encouraged by the trappings or powers of this world. Friends, Isaiah 9 teaches us that we can take heart, especially at this time of year, and maybe even especially after the decorated trees and ribbons and wrappings have all gone away. Because the Messiah who's coming, we have just celebrated. His coming, which already happened more than 2,000 years ago, it guarantees a future and universal joy, righteousness, and peace for all who will trust in him. And so please stand and read with me our text for this morning from Isaiah chapter 9, starting with verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, 
Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. As we work through this text this morning, we'll do so in three parts. Uh, as you can see on your, your outlines printed in the bulletin, the first of these is the promise of the Messiah's great light. Look with me at the first part of verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. Here we will see is one of the great but God statements of Scripture. The closing verses of chapter 8, which come just before this, describe the circumstances of those who refuse to pay attention to and submit to the Word of God. For these... There will be hardship, it says, and famine. No matter where they look, all they will find, it says in verse 22, is distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. This anguish, this difficulty under God's judgment is real, and Isaiah has argued all these chapters up until now that it is deserved. But, he says in chapter 9, there will be no more gloom. There will be no more anguish. And here we see that there is a specific people, a specific region in view here, continuing in verse 1. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The area Isaiah is describing here was the first part of the land of Israel to be subject to military invasion from Assyria what I was describing earlier in terms of Assyria's uh, imperial expansionism. This part of Israel was the first to be invaded, which would eventually lead to the exile of the northern kingdom about 10 years later after this prophecy was given. Now that this event, this initial invasion of the land, had already taken place at the time Isaiah wrote this text is evident from Isaiah's wording. He says this was in earlier times. This was something that had already come to pass as he wrote. And what we're to understand from this is that Assyria, as is the case with all of the nations throughout the Bible's prophetic literature, was simply the instrument of God, which he used in order to accomplish his purpose with Israel. 
his humbling purpose, in order, as the text says, to treat them with contempt. But, as the text also says, later on, he shall make it glorious. You see, this same territory which God made contemptible and humbled by making it the first victim of the Assyrian invasion, he promises here to make this same territory glorious, from contemptible to glorious. A total 180, a complete change of fortunes for what had become a humble and a despised part of Israel. And then, continuing, Isaiah describes this same contrast in the stark terms of darkness and light. Look at verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Now again, this darkness and light language builds on the end of chapter 8, where darkness describes the circumstances of those who have looked to places other than God's word. Look back with me at verse 19 in chapter 8. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? So instead of consulting God, they're consulting spiritists and mediums. Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? And what's the solution? What's the answer? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. So those who look for light in places other than God's word, it turns out they have no light. And so the border area of northern Israel, this is why it is called Galilee of the Gentiles, it borders on the Gentile nations, that area was in darkness. They did not speak according to this word. And so God turned them over to the darkness of his judgment. And he allowed them to be the first victims of the invasion from Assyria. But, it says, God will cause his light to shine on them. And just to peek ahead a little, the ground, the basis for all of this, for this whole text, all of these verses, comes in verse 6, where Isaiah describes specifically what, or better, who this light is. This light that will shine on them is the Messiah. And so this is why Matthew makes much of this text and its fulfillment in Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 4. And you might go ahead and turn there. It's good to see just how specifically in the details this is fulfilled. Matthew chapter 4, starting with verse 12. Matthew writes, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he, be, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Matthew tells us that this prophecy was fulfilled at Jesus' first coming. And not just by his presence, not just by his appearance, but by the fact that he began his preaching ministry in the re region of Zebulun and of Naphtali. And by the way, we can also tell from the gospel accounts and from Acts that most, if not all, of Jesus' 12 disciples were from this very same despised 
and lowly region. So those who had resisted God's word and had been under his judgment of dark, darkness and exile for doing so for hundreds of years, these were the very people who received the honor of having the Messiah bring his preaching ministry to them first, the very first to receive his call to repent, to leave their darkness and to come to his light. Now think for a minute about what we can take from this from the fact that the Messiah's great light comes into places marked by darkness and difficulty. I think there are at least two truths for us to learn from here. First, the gloom of darkness is purposeful. We read later in Isaiah, in chapter 66, God says, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Likewise, David writes in Psalm 51, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So the gloom of judgment is purposeful. God humbled this region, Zebulun and Naphtali, before he used it greatly, making it the first place for Jesus' preaching ministry and the place from which would come most, if not all, of his disciples. Secondly, God's light comes to the least likely places. And really, these two truths go together, and they should encourage and humble all of us. You see, you are here today, you are hearing this message of hope, not because there is anything good in you to recommend you to God. On the contrary, God's grace is to those who realize they do not deserve it. If the Lord has humbled you by placing you in hard circumstances you wouldn't have chosen, or by making your position in the world one not often looked at as highly esteemed, take heart. It is the humble, it is the despised, it is the poor in spirit who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And if you think that does not describe you, if you resist seeing yourself as weak, as poor in spirit, as bringing nothing of value to your salvation, I plead with you to reconsider. If anyone had anything to be proud of, it was the Apostle Paul, the Jew among Jews, the Hebrew of Hebrews. And in Philippians 3, he recounts of all of those things, all of his lists of accomplishments and qualifications. Those things had become loss to him. They all might as well have been darkness and gloom, compared with the glorious light of knowing Christ Jesus. So praise God, he did send this promised Messiah into the world exactly as he promised, to Galilee of the Gentiles, to the border where even Gentiles would be reached, fulfilling Isaiah's later prophecy in chapter 49 that it was in the Father's words to the Son, too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. His light has indeed shone in the darkness, and it shows even into the darkness that has reached all the way here, into the hearts of everyone here, 
apart from Christ. The Messiah's great light has shone in the darkness. This is the first promise of the Messiah that guarantees our future hope. Now moving to verse 3, we see our second promise, which is the promise of the Messiah's decisive victory. Verse 3, You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Now, just a couple of details to notice at this point about the text overall before we dive into the the, the meat of what Isaiah is saying here in these verses. First uh, is the matter of timing. As one commentator has somewhat humorously observed, trying to pay attention to the chronology of Isaiah's prophecy is kind of like watching a ping-pong match. He looks forward, and then further forward, and then to the present, and then to history, and then forward to the future again. And it can be kind of difficult to track with. So let me just point out again that we started in verse 1 in Isaiah's day, around 732 B.C. Then in the same verse and into verse 2, he anticipates the events of Jesus' lifetime over 700 years later, as we read about in Matthew chapter 4. Now, with verse 3, he jumps forward to a time that is yet future from our perspective, the time of the millennial kingdom. Then, in verse 4, we'll look back slightly to the time just before the millennial kingdom that leads up to it. Verse 6, we'll look again to Jesus' birth, 4 BC or so. And then verse 7 looks forward again to the kingdom, and then to the eternal state to which it will ultimately bring everything. Now, don't worry if you didn't follow all of that or get it written down. I'll remind you where we are as we work through the rest of the text. So, first, notice the back and forth of the timing. Secondly, notice the tense of the verbs. Uh, And specifically, if you're looking at the ESV, you may find uh, that many of these verbs are in the past tense, whereas in the New American Standard, from which I'm preaching, they're translated with a future sense. You shall multiply the nation. The thing to realize here is that in Hebrew, the grammatical forms of verbs do not inherently carry tense. But the significant thing in this text is that the verbs are all in what's called the perfect form, meaning that they describe completed action. They're looking at the action not as ongoing, not as repeated, but as a complete whole. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they describe events that already happened. In fact, we can tell just from reading the text that most of it describes future events from Isaiah's point of view. What it does mean is that these events are so certain that they can be spoken of with what is referred to as the prophetic perfect they can be treated in some sense as if they have already occurred because there is no hint of uncertainty that they will take place exactly as described here. And as we'll see in the final verse, verse 7, God is fully invested in making sure that this is the case. Now back to the text. Look again at verse 3. You shall multiply the nation. Notice the shift here from the first two verses. There Isaiah's audience was undefined, and he speaks of God in the third person. Here he moves to directly addressing God. You shall multiply the nation. This should prompt us to consider Isaiah's perspective on the nation, what it is, and why it would be in need of multiplying. If you look ahead to chapter 10, just slightly to the right, verse 22 reads, For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, Only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined. 
overflowing with righteousness. Now, this is the very verse the Apostle Paul cites in chapter 9 of Romans as part of his argument that not all Israel, but just the remnant of faithful Israelites would be saved, as exemplified by those who refused to bend the knee to the false god Baal. So just the remnant would be saved. The rest would remain under judgment. So Isaiah anticipates in his prophecy this judgment against Israel. He describes back in chapter 8 how both houses of Israel would strike and stumble over the Messiah who was meant to become a sanctuary to them and that this would reduce them to a relatively small remnant. And if you think about this, even now, even now in our day, the number of believing Jews is relatively minuscule. By and large, Israel continues to be a nation in rebellion against God. And so Isaiah utters this eschatological prophecy, you shall multiply the nation. Now, a further key to understanding what Isaiah has in view here is seeing this event as it is described in the other prophets, particularly in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. Uh, One key text that describes the same event comes in chapter 37 of Ezekiel, and you might turn there, uh, two books to the right uh, from Isaiah. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 37, beginning with verse 21, and I'm just going to give a few highlights here. I'm not going to read the whole text. Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 21. God says to Ezekiel, Say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel, I will gather them and bring them into their own land. Verse 22, I will make them one nation in the land, and they will no longer be two nations, and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. So at the time of our Isaiah prophecy, that's been the case. It's been two separate kingdoms for about 200 years. So this is prophesying the future when they will be reunited. Verse 23, they will no longer defile themselves with their idols. So part of this is that he will remove sin from among them. No longer will it be a small remnant of the people that's faithful. The whole people at this time will be made faithful. Uh, And then the Messiah connection, this is the Messiah, verse 24. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. And then verse 26, this we see the same wording as in our text in Isaiah 9, verse 3. He says, And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. And then verse 28, the upshot of it. The nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. So what is in view here when he says you will multiply the nation is not the nation multiplying by the inclusion of the Gentiles in the church age. There continues to be a distinction made between Israel and the other nations. Rather, what Isaiah has in view here is the time when God will increase what was in Isaiah's time and is even more so now just a tiny remnant of believing Israel so that as Paul says in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. This future salvation of all Israel is the event of which Isaiah prophesies when he says, you shall multiply the nation. And so, of course, it should be evident why this is such a joyful occasion and why he goes on to say, you shall increase their gladness. And this isn't just some kind of secular gladness. This is gladness that relates specifically to Yahweh. They will be glad in your presence. As with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. 
Here Isaiah uses two analogies to describe the great joy that will exist in Israel when their Messiah finally reunites them as one people who are thoroughly faithful under his rule and reign. The first of these analogies is the abundance of provision as represented, he says, by the gladness of harvest. Now this is in contrast with the gloom and darkness and famine described just a little bit earlier in chapter 8. This, what Isaiah is talking about, will be a time of the kind of intense joy experienced by those who benefit from an exceptionally fruitful harvest. So God will take this people, starting with the areas of Zebulun and Naphtali, from famine to an abundant harvest. Secondly, Isaiah likens their joy in that day, the day when God will multiply them, to the joy experienced by a nation victorious in battle. Again here, there is a contrast with what we saw earlier in terms of the humbling of the nation through military defeat at the hands of Assyria. In this case, it is Israel who will be victorious, and they'll rejoice as those who divide the spoil. Now Isaiah's reason for using this military analogy is evident from the future reality he goes on to describe. Look at verse 4. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. Now, as I mentioned earlier, verse 3 looked ahead to the millennial kingdom. Verse 4 looks back to what will bring it in, which is a final military battle that will literally be the war to end all wars. Now, we don't have time to look at all the other prophetic passages that describe how terrifying an event this battle will be, but uh, perhaps John's description from Revelation can best help us understand the dynamics here. The Apostle John writes, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So when Isaiah writes, You shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulder, this is what he's referring to. God himself will bring to a terrifying end all of those who are opposed to him. The rich, the strong, the slaves, the free, the kings, all of them. And notice what Isaiah likens this to. He says it will be as at the battle of Midian. You may recall the story of this battle in Judges chapter 7, where God reduced Gideon's army down from 20,000 to 300, so that he, so that God would get the glory. You see, Gideon and his men were up against what seemed like an insurmountable enemy, as we read in Judges 7. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And how did that battle go? The scripture continues. When they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army, and the army fled. That, the the battle at Midian, was a supernaturally affected outcome. And that is what Isaiah is likening it to here. The Messiah, who is God himself, will be the one to supernaturally break the staff and the yoke of his enemies in such an overwhelming way that all of them, we learn from John, 
the strong and the great, the rich among them will be crying out to the mountains and the rocks. It would be better to be crushed by the rocks and the mountains than to be subject to the wrath of God in this event. And then notice the subsequent disarmament. And this is described elsewhere in Scripture as the time when swords will be converted to plowshares and spears to pruning hooks because the implements of battle will no longer be needed. Look at verse 5. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. You see, that which had been a threat, the enemy's supplies, is made not to be only neutral, but to be to the benefit of God's people. It's converted into fuel for them. In this we see that the enemy is overthrown, God's people are freed from oppression, and this victory is so utterly complete and decisive that it is even a reversal, such that what once belonged to the enemy now serves the good of God's people. And if you recognize an echo of this in Romans 8, you'd be right that we are more than conquerors, that even something that belonged as much to the enemy as death is now made our servant, our slave, to bring us to God. So friends, we can take heart because of the Messiah's promised decisive victory. Now I have to say that this particular point was an encouragement to me this week as I surveyed the landscape of Christmas week at my home. As many of you know, we have a one-year-old little boy named John. Now we love John dearly. He's a good gift from the Lord. And one of the ways in which he's been a good gift from God is that his energy and activity level has tested the patience and peacefulness, and gentleness, and endurance of his parents. (laughs) And Kelly and I saw this past week in particular, with the extra work and extra activity of being parents of five kids at Christmas time, that it can be easy to feel like each day is just sort of a struggle to survive. There was maybe even a touch of disappointment at some of those times that Christmas was seeming like a drudgery, that it was a time of extra work that was only going to give way to more days of work as busy parents. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see my heart tending towards this kind of disappointment or even despair, I try to think quickly in terms of sanctification. You know, I need to put on the armor of God. I need to get on my knees and pray. I need to put off complaining, and I need to put on patience and long-suffering. And yes, that's all good and necessary. I did more of that probably this last week than most weeks. But this text gave me another help this week. It gave me a needed reminder of how Christmas itself means that not every tomorrow is going to be like today. Not every tomorrow will be a matter of struggling with the help of the Holy Spirit simply to put off more sin. Friends, the the Messiah will win a decisive victory for us. And this thought, together with Isaiah's example, led me from disappointment to worship. You see, when Isaiah switched in verse 3, as I noted, to speaking to God, he was recounting to God that he, God, will bring about these events when the Messiah comes to win his victory. And he was also praising God for the fact that he will do so. So, beloved, take heart and be encouraged. And let that encouragement lead you to praise and worship God for this promised victory that will be won by him, a victory that is guaranteed by the event of the incarnation. And this we see as we head into verse 6 and our final point, which is this, that we can take heart, finally, because the Messiah's coming 
guarantees his future universal reign. Look at verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Notice that verse 6 is the third verse in a row to begin with the word for. In verse 4, that word marked that the rejoicing of verse 3 would be brought about by the supernatural defeat of the enemy. In verse 5, 4 marked the further explanation of the effects of that defeat. But here in verse 6, this word is climactic. You see, the 4 in verse 6 indicates that the coming of this child, the birth of the promised son, explains everything. As has been the case several times up to this point in the book of Isaiah, God here attaches the certainty of his promises to the sign of a child's birth. A couple of chapters back in chapter 7, it was the name of Isaiah's son, Shir Yashub, which means a remnant shall return. And then later in that same chapter, chapter 7, came the promised sign, with which we're probably all familiar, of a virgin who would be with child and bear a son, whose name she would call Emmanuel. And that promise, incidentally, is connected directly with this one in chapter 9. Then in chapter 8, it was the name of Isaiah's next son, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, meaning swift is the booty, speedy is the prey, which anticipates the further aggression of Assyria that Isaiah has been talking about. But here, in verses 6 and 7, we find the ultimate child sign. As one commentator has said, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. The power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians and all the big shots of this world that he can defeat them by coming as a mere child. The coming of this child, then, explains the change from darkness to light in verses 1 and 2. It explains the joy of verse 3. It explains the freedom decisively won in verse 4. And it explains the peace of verse 5. And all of this is expanded on in Isaiah's coming description of this son and his work. First, look at the next part of verse 6. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Here there's a bit of wordplay that reaches back to verse 4. His people, the Messiah's people, had a yoke of burden and a staff on their shoulders. This the child would remove from them by taking the burden of government onto himself, onto his own shoulder. So his work will be to govern, which leads secondly to the question of what kind of governor, what kind of ruler will this promised one be? And Isaiah answers this by stating his fourfold name, continuing in verse 6. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The first thing we see here is he is wise. Unlike Ahaz, king of Judah at the time of this prophecy, 
the Messiah will be a king who can see and discern accurately the right path to take at any time. The word wonderful here has the basic meaning of supernatural. It's often used for the miracles or wonders performed by God. Later in chapter 28, upon prophesying that God's people would reject the Messiah stone which he planned to place among them, Isaiah summarizes with the same wording found here. He writes, This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. You see, the Messiah's counsel, this king's counsel, is equivalent to God's counsel, God's wisdom. As one commentator has observed, surely, as such a counselor, the Messiah would make his wisdom available to his people in all of their quandaries and perplexities. And indeed, he has, according to a multitude of texts. And here is just a brief sampling. In Psalm 32, God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Asaph says in Psalm 73, With your counsel you will guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. And then Paul writes to the Corinthians, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So the Messiah is God's wisdom to us. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. And next, his name will be Mighty God. Not only will he be infinite in wisdom, he will also be infinite in power to carry out the full counsel of his will. Thus, the overwhelming and decisive victory we read about in verses 3 and three to 5. As the Apostle John says of him again in the book of Revelation, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. The Messiah will, of course, be all-powerful in his rule and reign because he is God himself. Despite some commentators' attempts to make this term, mighty God, mean something else, it is clear from the same wording in chapter 10, verse 21, in which it's unmistakably a reference to Yahweh, that Isaiah is saying that this child to be born is God himself. As John Calvin writes, he is therefore called the mighty God, for the same reason that he was formerly called in chapter 7, Emmanuel. For if we find in Christ nothing but the flesh and nature of man, our glorying will be foolish and vain, and our hope will rest on an uncertain and insecure foundation. But if he shows himself to be to us God and the mighty God, we may now rely on him with safety." Now, looking again at the text, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and next, Eternal Father. Now, this name is striking, if only because <clears throat> we know that it is speaking of Jesus the Son, not of God the Father. But we find elsewhere, specifically in this same book, Isaiah 53, that by his work on the cross, Jesus has in some sense become our Father. There, Isaiah writes, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. So that's the Messiah, will see his offspring. And this is reinforced by Jesus' own words in John 14. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. 
I will come to you. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So this one, born a child, this Messiah, is not only a wonderful counselor and a mighty God, he is also always a father to his children. This speaks of the tenderness and the heavenly anxiety he has to care for his children in all of our circumstances. Finally, his name will be called Prince of Peace. As John Piper has noted, there's an important and intentional progression in these names. The Messiah's wisdom and strength and fatherly care build on each other, leading ultimately to this, to the fact that this leader, this ruler, will produce shalom. He will produce peace for his people. Now, as Dale Ralph Davis has said, and I think we saw as we considered earlier the description of his decisive victory, the way in which the Messiah will bring peace in this world is no namby-pamby affair, but rather such peace comes by force. In fact, it's interesting to note that the lexical meaning, the sort of dictionary meaning of shalom in the Hebrew, seems to assume victory, which is why in Judges 8 you read this about Gideon. It says in the ESV, And Gideon said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. So it's that word, shalom, but it's coming to break down the tower. So it's not what we might usually conceive of as peace. And I say that to point out that too often we can be drawn to the world's conception of peace, that it means inner peace, quietness, or tolerance, especially that it means tolerance of sin. That is not what God's word means by peace. The peace this child will bring, he will bring by decisive and forceful action. So this child, this promised son, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now I want you to pause right here and consider something. This is the name of the child who was born to us. He was born not just to bring Judah and Israel back, but to gather us, to gather Gentiles into his fold. And he has done that. Martin Lloyd-Jones' wife tells the story of an elderly man, Mr. Matthews, whom her mother taught to read. She taught him through Welsh, but he was apparently a fast learner. In almost no time, Mr. Matthews was reading slowly and haltingly with his finger following the words. Then soon with ease, but when he first picked out the word Yesu, Jesus, he broke down, tears coursing down his cheeks, and he exclaimed, Oh, his name, his blessed name. He picked up the book and he kissed the name. Friends, does the glory of the revelation of your Savior's name overcome your heart with worship like this? It should. This is the name of your Messiah, of your God. He is worthy of all of your hope, all of your worship, and all of your praise. This should be your heart's response to this glorious name, that you should glory in it, that you would worship your Messiah, the child, the son born to you, the light who came in time and space to the area of Naphtali and Zebulun near the sea 
of Galilee. The fact that he did come, the fact of what we refer to as Christmas, is God's stunning guarantee that all of his promises are true and that they are so certain to come to pass that he can speak of them as if they already have. So Isaiah has told us that the government will be on this child's shoulders and that he will be wise, strong, a caring father, and that he will bring peace. Now he continues. Look at verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. As I mentioned earlier from Isaiah 49, it was too small a thing that this Messiah would be for Israel and Judah only. This salvation is meant to bring in a universal peace and good government. It will be Jesus' millennial reign as king on the throne of his father David that will incrementally but certainly bring about the reversal of the rebellion that began in Genesis chapter 3. The Messiah, King Jesus, will reign with perfect righteousness and perfect justice, and he will bring the nations back into submission to God, reversing the curse and its effects, even so that life expectancy will drastically increase and so that animals that are now predators will become docile, as described in Isaiah chapter 11. Friends, this is not a temporary fix. It's not even a thousand-year fix. This is a perfect reign and rule that will culminate with the defeat of the last enemy, which is death, and which will result in perfect and eternal life with God for all of his children. Verse 7 ends with a tacit acknowledgement of the seeming impossibility of all that is promised here. As Isaiah concludes this way, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. How likely is it that a child would be born to a virgin? How likely is it that the coming of a child would turn back the pain and darkness brought about by the aggressions of the Assyrian military? How is it possible that God would be born a child and that this child would usher in an eternal peace and final reversal of the curse under which all of creation has suffered since the garden? In a word, all of this is impossible. But God. But the zeal, and that word is the same word for jealousy, it is God's infinite zeal, his infinite jealousy for the glory of his own name, his utter determination to accomplish all of his holy will. The zeal of the Lord of hosts makes certain all of this will come to pass. And so, friend, the question turns to you. Where will you look for hope? I know that you live with disappointments. I know that you live with pain and with suffering. I know that you live with anxieties. I know by experience that you live with uncertainties in a world where the very things you put your hope in frequently end up being the exact things that bring you the most pain. And that's just a repetition of what happened in Israel and Judah. God was relentless in the Old Testament with putting the hope of his Messiah 
in front of a people who belonged to him in name, but constantly went astray in their hearts. Will you be different? Or will you look to politics or to political alliances? Will you look to your bank account or investment portfolio? Will you look to your career or your plans for a close-knit family? Will you look to the possibility of a new medical treatment or prescription medication? To some kind, any kind of temporal relief from your difficulties. And for those hearing my voice who have always put your hope in the things of this world and never in this Messiah, I urge you, come to him. And let me just say, if you have questions about that, ask. I or the other elders would would be happy to talk with you about these things, and so would probably the person next to you. Friends, these promises, the promises of the Messiah are certain, and one of them has already come to pass. God was born a man. And that man went, as it was written of him, to the cross, where the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. He rendered himself as a guilt offering, and so he will see his offspring. And he will accomplish unfailingly, on behalf of all who are his, each and every one of these glorious promises, so that he is the only worthy object of all of your worship, and of all of your praise, and of all of your hope for all eternity. Please pray with me. O God, your people bow before the glory of your great name. We thank you for the eternal hope of Christmas, and God, we ask that you would seal these truths to our hearts. O Father, I ask that you would grant to each one in this room to be among those who turn from our darkness to your light. Help us, Lord, as we go from here to put our hope in what the coming of Emmanuel guarantees. We thank you, Father, that he will win the decisive victory and that his universal and perfect reign is coming and that all of this will be for our eternal joy. We pray all in the glorious name of our great Savior Jesus. Amen.